go. Open up your Bibles. Here we go. This is going to be a, a jet tour thing. Uh, to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to assemble freely together to not only fellowship with our sisters in Christ and to share our hearts and our prayer requests and, and to um, share with one another what you have given to us during the week by your spirit from the word of God, but also to get to know you better through a study of your word and to get to know better in this study your plan for the future. Now I ask that you would help me to have a clear mind to only say those things which are true. Um, Lord, help me make no errors in this message, an important message. Lord, help all of us to be able to concentrate on uh, what you have to say to us through your word, through your spirit. And we're getting into territory that hasn't happened yet, so nothing can be dogmatic. And um, But we do know that your son is coming again one day. We do believe that. So we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now be with us in this next hour, for we pray these things in your blessed son's name. Amen. Okay, with this lesson, we're going to continue Daniel's interpretation of the God-given dream colossus, which prophetically pictured the times of the Gentiles when Israel would be trodden underfoot by Gentile powers. The interpretation of that dream in its entirety was found, is found in chapter 2, verses 36 to 45. I hear an echo. Is that okay? Is it bothering you? Should I back up? Um, but anyway, last week... I didn't cover the whole thing. <laughs> We've divided it up. And last week, I told you a lie. Sorry. I said that we would be covering four now past Gentile kingdoms, which we did as we looked at verses 36 to 40. But then I told you next week, I did say Lord willing, though, didn't I? Next week, Lord willing, we're going to cover two yet future kingdoms. Guess what? Only one. <laughs> when I started studying the one yet future Gentile kingdom, which is the kingdom represented by the feet and the toes, there was no way I found out soon enough that I was going to get to the yet future godly kingdom, the millennial kingdom. All we're going to cover today is the one yet future Gentile kingdom, which is the kingdom of the feet and the toes, the, the kingdom you could say of the Antichrist. All right, so as we are now getting into the subject of end times prophecy, it's important for me to tell you that not everybody, have you noticed this? If you're, if you're old enough like me, I'm sure you have realized this by now, but not everybody interprets prophecy the same way. Keep talking. There are four major schools of interpretation when it comes to end times Bible prophecies. Okay, four different major schools. Some of you probably attend churches that teach a different one of these ways of interpretation than what we teach here. And that's why some of you say, well, I've never heard that before. Well, that's probably because your pastor, your church, your denomination, whatever, teaches from a different perspective. I am very strong in my, in my belief that what I teach is true, <laughs> obviously, and that is the futuristic view of end times. That makes sense. It's end times, so it's, you know, yet future. Um, but I, I believe that the futuristic view 
is the, most, the one that you can take most literally. But I'll get into that in a minute. Um, anyway, so not everyone agrees about certain passages like what we're looking at today with Daniel, chapter 2, and the last kingdom, represented by the feet and the toes. Um, and then when, also when we get into chapter 7, same thing. Not everyone agrees about that last beast. And um, chapters 8 and 11, different chapters in Daniel. Ezekiel has a lot of eschatological passages in it. Joel does, Zechariah does, and then there's the Lord's Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. People disagree that, about that, how to interpret that discourse. And then, of course, what other book is there a lot of disagreement about? Absolutely, the book of Revelation. Now, as I said, and I've been in churches that have taught all of the, all of the different views. I've been in a church, I grew up in a, a church that taught the preterist view. That's why I never heard of the rapture or the second coming, things like that. I also was in a church for a while that taught the historicist view. And then I have heard many people preach from the idealistic view. And so, you know, I was really confused and I started studying God's word to see what do I believe. And that's what I want you to do. Don't just believe because... Your parents believe that, your church tells you that, your pastor, your priest, whatever. Don't believe because of that. Study the scripture for yourself and decide what you believe. After studying the scripture myself now for over 40 years, I am firmly a futurist. Firmly. I do believe in it. Um, I believe it is the only uh, view that has a solid basis for consistent, verifiable interpretation. So I'm going to begin with a short explanation of it, the futuristic view. You don't have to bother writing all this down because it's going to be in your lesson that you'll get later this afternoon via email. Um, but the futuristic view says that the feet and toes of the dream of Daniel chapter 2 and the corresponding ten-horned stage of the dreadful fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7 are yet future. Well, that makes sense. That's why it's called the futuristic view, because <laughs> you believe it's yet future. Futurists uh, say that these things have not seen their fulfillment yet in history. The futurist says that all visions of John, when he was on the Isle of Patmos, from chapter 4 of Revelation to the end of the book, so from chapter 4 to chapter 22 of Revelation, all those visions are yet to be fulfilled. Um, futurists believe in a church age, which began with Pentecost and will end with the rapture of the church. The mystery was not revealed about the church age until the um, New Testament. We believe in a literal seven-year tribulation period. <clears throat> and we get that from Daniel's 70-week prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, which we'll get to one of these years when we get out of chapter 2 and work our way to chapter 9. Um, but we believe that period of time is seven years long. And during that seven-year tribulation, it will be like Israel going through the fiery furnace to purify her. But there will be the rise of a man 
uh, most famously known as the Antichrist, although he's never really called that in the scripture. He's called other names, the son of perdition, the king of fierce countenance, the lawless one, all kinds of names. But we know him basically as the Antichrist. He is going to rise to a position of world leadership, world power, during the Great Tribulation, which is the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, at the end of which... Jesus Christ will literally return to earth, this is Revelation 19, after all the seal, trumpet, and uh, bowl judgments, he's going to return to earth at the Battle of Armageddon, and he's coming back in judgment. And he will then, after the judgment, he's the smiting stone, you know, that comes out of, and strikes that image on its feet and toes, the whole thing crumbles down, judgment, and then he is going to literally establish a millennial kingdom. It will literally be for 1,000 years, as it says in Revelation 21 verses 1 through 3 or 1 through 6, something like that. And then that kingdom will be followed by the great white throne judgment. And then the ushering in of the eternal state in what is called the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, futurists believe that God is, this is important, God is going to keep all of his covenant promises ever made with the nation of Israel. And that at the time of Christ's return, she will be saved corporately as a nation. It's going to be the end of the Joseph story. You know, Joseph is such a perfect type of Christ. He was rejected just like Jesus by his own brother, sold for pieces of silver, right? But what happened in the end? They finally bowed before him, called him Zaphnath-Paneah, Savior of the world, and that's going to happen one day with Jesus' brothers and sisters, the nation of Israel. They will, after going through the fiery furnace, they're going to be prepared to, to know him, to acknowledge him. All right, that's the futurist view in a nutshell. And if you've been with me long enough, that wasn't surprising to you. You know that's, that's what I believe. That's what we teach here in this Bible study. Well, there other, uh, another view is called the preterist view, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. Like I said, it'll be in your notes. It says that Bible prophecy about the end times has already been fulfilled. It is now almost entirely history. Now, I say almost entirely because there are two types of preterists. There are full or hyper-preterists, and there are partial preterists. The partial do believe in a someday second coming off in the distance or a judgment day, some kind, some kind of thing like that in the end. But hyper-preterists um, don't. All preterists believe that the triumph of Christianity over Judaism and over paganism happened in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem and over paganism basically with the fall of the Roman Empire whenever you want to place that date. They don't go much further than the 400s AD. Preterists do not believe in the rapture of the church. They do not believe in a literal millennial kingdom, which is called amillennialism. You put an A in front of a word and it means no, no millennial. Uh, they're amillennialists. They teach that the new heavens and the new earth, which is described in Revelation 21, is a description of the world today under the new covenant. All right? So does that depress you? Today we're living in the new earth? 
Mm, yeah, that is depressing. They, they teach that Israel has no future place in God's plan. He is finished with her. Kaput. And that his covenants instead are with the church now. So you can see why preterists often go hand in hand with the theology that is called replacement theology. That teaches the church has replaced Israel. Okay, that's called replacement theology. They say that the fact that Israel is back in the land today, which we call a miracle, a resurrection from the dead, it is the fulfillment, really part of the fulfillment of Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones. You know, that the bones would come out of the, the earth and form back into, she doesn't have her life in her yet. You know, God breathed spiritual life, but she's back in a skeletal form with sinew and flesh on her. Um, but they say that fact that Israel's back in the land is an accident of history. That's almost an oxymoron if you believe in God, that history is his story. There are no accidents in his story, but that's what they teach. They say that the tribulation is completely over. It happened way back from 66 to 70 A.D., Okay, that's not even seven years long. So they misunderstand completely Daniel's 70-week prophecy. But they say it's over. Now I have a problem with that because Jesus said the tribulation, especially the great tribulation, the world will never see anything like it. I mean, there's been things way worse than what happened with the destruction of Jerusalem. What about the Holocaust? What about World War I, World War II? All, you know, all kinds of things have been way worse than that and went on for longer periods of time. But they say the tribulation is over. They say that Nero, Emperor Nero, was the Antichrist. And how about this? The leadership of Israel was the false prophet. Now, I don't know how Nero ever worked with the leaders of Israel. But here's another problem. Nero died in 68 AD, two years before the end of their tribulation. And he committed suicide. Now, if he really was the Antichrist, why didn't he come back from the dead? I mean, I have all kinds of questions. They say Satan's already bound. Oh, my. <laughs> well, where's all this evil coming from? Us? <laughs> Ooh, that's a scary thought. All right, so that's, um, well, no, let me talk about full preterists. Full preterists or hyper preterists say that there is no second coming of Christ, that he already returned... He returned spiritually as that smiting stone back in 70 AD. He actually returned and he was in the clouds. Nobody saw him. Hey, there's a problem with Revelation 1-7 that says, Every eye shall see him. And what about those two angels at his ascension? See, this Jesus is going to come back the same way he came, you know? Bodily, physically, touched down on the Mount of Olives, just where he departed from. But they say Jesus came back, second coming, in the air, and he watched the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, they don't believe that there is a judgment day, and they do not believe in the resurrection of the human body. Kind of sound like Sadducees there, don't they? Now, other names for preterism are realized eschatology. You get that? Eschatology, study of end times, it's already been realized. Or another name for preterism is the AD 70 doctrine, because everything took place in 70 AD. 
Now, I could take a whole lot more time to refute this from Scripture, but I don't have time, and that would be a whole lesson. But to the preterist, preterist there is no distinction between the legs of iron and the feet and toes of, of mixed clay and iron of the Daniel 2 dream image because both of those body parts of the statue represent ancient Rome, which was conquered, you see, they say, by the invisible kingdom of God, now spreading through the earth as a growing mountain. Remember when the stone came down, what did it, it do? It grew into a great mountain that took over the whole earth. Well, they say that's going on right now through the preaching of the gospel and has been for the last 2,000 years. Well, by the way, how are we doing on that? Taking over the whole earth? Not too well, I would say. Well, it is clear from both Daniel 2, verse 35, where it says that stone came down, smote the whole thing, wind came along, blew every bit and piece of that image, you know, like chaff from the summer threshing floor, and immediately the kingdom was set up, you know, and the stone grew to a great mountain, filled the whole earth. That all is very clearly... Um, a final total transition from the destruction of the whole world system represented by the image and the establishment of the messianic kingdom represented by the great, the, the stone that becomes a great mountain. Doesn't that, I mean, that's sudden, instant, right there, total. But the preterist view, therefore, when they read a passage like this, they, they have to deal with the fact, fact, that the Roman Empire continued on a long time, even after 70 AD, right? So I guess they have to say that the wind is taking a very long time to blow away all the chaff from that statue. You get me? And here's another question I have. I have a lot of questions for the preterists, um, but here's another one. How was everything in the book of Revelation fulfilled in 70 AD? Now think about this one. How was everything in Revelation fulfilled in 70 AD when John didn't even write Revelation until 95 AD? Hmm. How do they answer that one? Well, they have to push up the writing of the book of Revelation to before 70 AD, which does not fit the facts. You know, I thought it's interesting how some will take the book of Daniel and they push up the writing and then they take the book of Revelation and they push back the writing of the book all to fit their little theories. All right, now, um, that's the preterist view. I think in your notes I, tell, I ask you this question. How many of you have heard of Dr. R.C. Sproul? Raise your hand. Not as many as I thought. He's pretty, pretty well known and he is really getting this movement uh, to grow. It is growing. The preterist movement today is very, very popular. Um, and he actually thinks he's defending the scripture because, it get dark? <laughs> in Second Peter, where it says, you know, the scoffers in the end times say, well, where is the promise of Christ's coming? You know, all things continue as they have from the very beginning. And so people have been scoffing, well, Christ isn't coming back. So he thinks, really, his idea is he's defending the scripture by saying, oh, no, you scoffers have it all wrong. He already came back. He came back 2,000 years ago. All right. Anyway, there's another view, which is called the historicist view of biblical prophecy. And it says that much of the current church age 
is equal to the tribulation period. Isn't that interesting? The preterists say that we're now in the new heaven, in the new earth, and the historicists say we're kind of in the tribulation. The historicist view is really hard for me to nail down and figure out exactly what it's all about, but it's almost like they look at the book of Revelation and say that it's a, um, an evolving pattern of repeating things. You know, we have wars and rumors of wars, and it's just, it's just ongoing. The preterist says everything is already fulfilled. The historicist says it's kind of ongoing fill, being filled. Um, and depending on where you live in history, some of these symbols can symbolize what's going on in your particular period of history. The futurist says it's in the future. Okay, so that's the difference. The historicists say that most of Daniel and Revelation, their pro prophecies, are symbolic of persons and in events in history. Um, that basically most of them are now fulfilled. For example, they see the seal judgments of the book of Revelation. And you know, out of the seventh seal come the, the trumpet judgments, and then out of the seventh trumpet judgment come the bowl judgments. So they see all the judgments as representative of the, the um, decline and the fall of the Roman Empire. They see the little book that John was given in chapter 10 of Revelation to eat. They see that as the Protestant Reformation. And they see um, chapters 12 and 13 as Catholicism and the papacy. And other chapters of Revelation are linked to the past invasion of the Huns, not the nuns, the Huns, and the spread of Islam and the rise of the modern missionary movement. Here's a problem. Hardly any two historicists agree with each other on what all the different things symbolize. There are more than 50 different views of what this pictures, what that pictures, and it's just really a mess. It's, this view is not very widely held today, but I'm gonna shock you by telling you some people who were historicists, almost all the reformers. I'm talking about Martin Luther, the Wesleys, John Knox, John Calvin, Huss, Charles Spurgeon was not a reformer, but he was a historicist. Some very, very famous people were historicists. All right, now the one other view is the idealist view. It doesn't believe that the Bible indicates the timing of events or that it is even possible to determine their timing. Idealism is also called the, the spiritual view of interpreting end times events, or the allegorical view, or the non-literal approach to scripture. It sees passages of prophecy as teaching great general truths about God. To the idealist, biblical prophecy is merely symbolic of the ongoing cosmic stru struggle between good and evil. And eventually, one day, good will win. The kingdom of heaven is neither physical nor political. It's merely a symbol that represents society's general improvement. You know, evil men are waxing better and better, not worse and worse. Society is getting better. That's what they would say. Is that happening? I mean, 
Idealists need to be realists because that just ain't happening. Bible eschatology represents to them existential truths that can bring the individual hope. I've heard guys preach like that, you know, existentially. What does that mean? I don't know. Um, they, say, they say that uh, the beasts in the book of Revelation, the beasts, that's a hard word to say, um, they represent social injustice, like the exploitation of workers and materialism and capitalism and imperialism and what other ism you want to put on there. Idealism doesn't see any prophecies as being fulfilled in a literal, physical, or earthly manner, either in the past, present, or the future. So, um, I don't know, just ongoing struggle. One day, good wins. That's basically the ideal. So, the, the preterist, the past, the historist is kind of ongoing. The futurist, future, and the idealist, clueless. I mean, timeless. <laughs> All right, now, with that behind us, do you understand why I'm a futurist? I hope so. I'm a futurist because it's the only, I mean, it's the only, it makes the whole Bible consistent. You take the Bible for what it says, it actually means what it says. Understanding, of course, that there's symbols like the whole statue of the dream. But when there's a symbol, you go to other scripture because scripture is used to interpret scripture. A lot of it you can look back on history and understand. I mean, it's just, it's just the best. It is the best. Anyway, let's get on to our study now and look at verses 41 to 43. One yet future, yes, yet future, <laughs> Gentile kingdom. Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 41, And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall not mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave to one, one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. You think he said iron and clay a few times in there? Iron and clay, iron and clay. In verse 41, Daniel not only re-mentioned the feet as he had when he was telling the king what he had dreamt. Back in verse 33, he talked about the feet. But now for the very first time, he also speaks of the toes of the feet. He hadn't talked about the toes before. Now, it is significant that he said more about the feet and toes of this image than about the entire rest of the image. That's important, that's significant, and it obviously must tell us something. And I think what it tells us is that this final Gentile kingdom is the most important of all of them. Why would that be? Well, probably because it is the one that does fully prepare Israel for faith in her Messiah the returned Christ. The toes, Daniel tells us, consist of, of that same strange iron, mix, iron with baked clay mixture as the feet. So the feet and the toes are both mixed iron and, and clay. And he dwells on that, doesn't he? He says that over and over again. Now, as we're going to discuss, 
Lord willing, <laughs> next time, the stone that strikes the image on its feet and toes represents Christ at his second coming. Uh, this means that the kingdom represented by the feet and toes is going to be in existence at the time the Lord returns, right? So it's, it's yet future, because unlike the preterists, I don't believe he's already returned. So it cannot, mean, it cannot therefore, be ancient Rome. The um, feet and toes cannot be ancient Rome because it no longer exists. Look around you. Where's the Roman Empire? It's gone. It, it, it kind of fell in on itself long ago. And even when it did exist, it was never divided into ten parts represented by the toes. It was never divided into ten parts simultaneously. This is a problem with the preterists and the historicists because they try to say, well, Rome did have ten emperors. Well, they had a whole lot more than that, but they had ten, ten emperors between the time before Christ was born and the time of Nero and Domitian. They count ten. But those were in succession. They didn't all, they weren't all emperors, kings at the same time. Get it? Um, so this is a yet future fifth kingdom represented by the feet and the toes of the image. Now, nonetheless, having said that, there is a connection between this yet future fifth kingdom of ten simultaneous parts. There's a connection of it with the past Roman Empire. And that connection is not only seen by the fact that the feet and the toes form the base of the whole statue. You know, they're, they're all part of the same image. It's the final stage of that whole godless world system. But that, con that um, connection is seen um, in the fact that as with the legs, the toes and feet contain the element of iron. All right, so there's a connection there. The iron-crushing authority of the ancient Roman Empire is likewise going to be evident in this yet future final world empire. But there's going to be something different about the final world empire from the ancient Rome because mixed with the iron is what? The baked clay, which is like earthenware. It's like pottery <coughs> or tile. This mixed elements feature is not like anything that we saw in the previous four kingdoms. Because each one of those kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, were comprised exclusively of just one element. This one has two, right? The final one has two. And every one of the other kingdoms was represented by a metal only exclusively by a metal, gold, silver, brass, or iron. But this final kingdom is diverse. It's different because not only does it have two elements, but one of those elements is not a metal. Baked clay is not a metal. So are you still following me? <laughs> All right, now speaking of the kingdom represented by the feet and the toes, Daniel said in verse 41 <clears throat> that it would be divided. Now, <clears throat> many, now this is where you want to, 
take up your little, if you have your statue picture. I did this 29 years ago and I did it looking at a book, but I have changed my mind. So I would like you to X out where I have on the legs Eastern Division and Western Division. Just scratch that out, okay? And many Bible students, and a lot of this comes from the historicist and the preterist teaching, have taken those words where Daniel said, the kingdom shall be divided. They take those words to be a prophetic reference to what took place in 364 A.D., the 4th century A.D., when the empire, you know, the Roman Empire divided into the eastern section with its capital, it's called the Byzantine Empire, and its cap capital was in Constantinople, it divided the eastern to the western, and the western part of the empire had their capital in Rome. And that's why the Eastern, the Byzantine, um, you get the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, the church I grew up in, the Greek Orthodox, that's the Byzantine part. And then the Western, you had Roman Catholicism. All right, so they say when, da when Daniel said the kingdom is divided, that is referring to that division. But guess what? Daniel did not speak about a division in his narrative until he spoke of the feet and the toes. He didn't say anything about the legs being divided. He was talking about the feet and toes um, situation. And since the toes picture a kingdom that will be in existence at the time of Christ's return, this division cannot refer to the split that took place in ancient Rome. By the way, when that split did take place, guess what? It was in the church age. Yeah. In the church age isn't seen in this statue at all, unless you put an ankle bracelet on the guy. You know, a, a gap there between the legs and the, and the last kingdom of the feet and toes. It was a mystery unseen. Now, technically, the division of the two legs really began even before the iron stage of Rome. Where do your legs begin? Your thighs, the thighs. So the division actually began with the thighs of brass, which, which pictured the two divisions of the final years of the Greek empire. After Alexander died, there were four generals took his place, but then eventually it wound up being two main divisions of the Greek empire, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. Furthermore, if the legs were to be appropriately pictured um, to, to give us the uh, Western division from the Eastern division of the Roman Empire, then this guy would have to have one leg a lot longer than the other, or else maybe amputated around the knee. Because the Eastern division of the Roman Empire went on almost a thousand years longer than the Western division, okay? Now, I've said all that and confused you, and I, I, the only reason I said it is because here's the fact of the matter. There are two legs on this statue because that's how many legs the statue of a man would have. How many legs have you got? <laughs> Nowhere does Daniel say that the legs represent a, or picture a division. 
He, do, he doesn't talk about a division till the feet and the toes, okay? And nowhere does he tell us, as he does with the toes, that the legs represent something else. Now, he does tell us the toes are speaking of kings. He says that in verse 44. Did I read verse 44? Oh, I should have read the first part. He says, and look at the first part of verse 44. And in the days of these kings, well, he had just been talking about feet and toes. So now he tells us, those toes are kings. Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom? All right. So, but he doesn't say that about the legs. Neither is there anything in the corresponding dreadful beast of Daniel chapter 7 that hints of a, a split in that last kingdom. If you look at that last beast, you know that ugly little guy there? There's nothing about him. He's ugly. Uh, he's got teeth like uh, made of iron, and he's got nails of brass. And I purposely want you to see I, I put brass nail polish on, so just for this. You know, it's ugly. But there's nothing about him. He's a compact beast. There's no, no division in that beast until when? The horns, the ten horns that come out of his head. So we go back to the question. Then what? division of the final kingdom is Daniel talking about. What is the reference to? Well, the natural reading of the text would appear to be a division that is caused by the forced mixture of the two non-cohesive elements of the iron with the baked clay. The attempt to bind two distinctly different materials, one strong and one brittle, into a unified empire is a precarious operation of futility. It's one that does prove utterly vain. It's difficult enough to keep a kingdom comprised of two different people groups together, to, you know, unified, like the Medes and the Persians, to keep them unified, much less to try to keep an empire together that consists of 10, 10 kings, all right? Now, by the way, the toes are small, aren't they? You know, you look at your toes, they're not very big. Um, that, they're small in relation to the rest of the Colossus, which depicts the short duration of this final kingdom. How long is it going to be? Only seven years. Now, compare that with the head. Babylon lasted around 73 years. The Medes and the Persians and the Greeks each lasted, that empire, each, each of those lasted about 200 years. And then Rome went on the longest, you know, maybe if you count the Eastern Division, about 1,500 years or so. But the last kingdom, the Toes, only seven years, which is a good thing, only seven years. Now, because the last Gentile kingdom is yet an unfulfilled part of overall prophecy concerning the times of the Gentiles, there is a lot of widespread speculation about the identities of those ten toes. So for me to stand up here and be dogmatic about you know, what, they, what they identify, what, what they are maybe today, that's dangerous. That could be foolish. Um, so I'm not going to be dogmatic. I'm going to give you some ideas, but there are general statements that we can dogmatically make about this final yet future stage of the statue. Now, it would be very difficult to figure out much of anything if all we had was what I read earlier 
you know, in Daniel's limited dream interpretation of, of this final stage, because that was really pretty confusing, wasn't it? When we read through that. If that's all we had, it'd be hard to say what he's talking about. But we have additional enlightenment from God in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 of his book, of Daniel's book, as well as the whole book of Revelation. Now, in Daniel 7, in Daniel 7, God gave his faithful servant a night vision in which Daniel saw four beasts that arise out of the great sea of humanity. That's in Daniel 7, 3. These four beasts come out of where? The sea of humanity. Sea. Whenever you read in prophecy about the sea, it speaks of Gentile nations. When you talk, when it, when it says the land, that's talking about Israel. All right, so we know these beasts are Gentile nations. And those beasts easily parallel the four now past Gentile kingdoms that we've talked about in Daniel chapter 2. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Now the fourth, the fourth beast, that iron-toothed, dreadful beast, you know, um, nails of brass, pictured in Daniel's vision, is also said, just like the toes, the last kingdom of the toes, to be diverse or different from all the beasts that went before it. And then Daniel says, after he says it's diverse, he says, and it had ten horns. So as the feet and toes of the statue were diverse from the other body parts, in that they contained two materials, and one of them wasn't metal, and then they ended up being ten toes, a subdivision of ten parts. So also there is something about the fourth beast of chapter 7 that makes it different from all the previous beasts. And what is that difference? It's a beast. The others were beasts. What makes it different is that it has something growing out of its head. <laughs> Ten horns. Now, horns in the Bible are a picture, a symbolic picture of power. An animal with horns, you know, the male buck. Somebody said yesterday the rhinoceros. I didn't really think about the rhinoceros, but uh, the male moose, whatever he's called, and all, all those kind of animals that have horns, that's their power, right? That's what they used to fight with. So horns speak of power. This last kingdom will not ever truly, we find out, enjoy the absolute monarchy um, that Nebuchadnezzar enjoyed with Babylon. You know, what he said was it, that was final, and he was the one and only king, and he ruled. He was a king of kings, wasn't he? But this last kingdom isn't going to have that kind of control, which kind of shocked me when I started studying, because I always thought, well, the Antichrist, you know, he rules the whole world. But... At first, it is a kingdom that is shared with ten, ten powers, ten horns, ten kings. And they then willingly submit themselves to an eleventh power. He's actually another horn, a little horn, comes out of the middle of them, and he's the Antichrist. They share their kingdom with him. And then this kingdom even has to share for half of its existence, for three and a half years, it's, it has to share the allegiance of its subjects with a religious system that is called Mystery Babylon. 
And that's going to be after the true church is raptured, the rest of the religions of the world are going to join in one, you know, ecumenical false church called Mystery Babylon. And so the kingdom of the Antichrist and the Ten Kings is going to have to share power with this church. When he finally gets sick of her, he's going to devour her. Um, so even when the Antichrist, with his ten-toed, ten-horned confederacy, can't help but think of purple fly, what is that? One horn, purple fly, <laughs> how's it called? One horn, flying purple people eater. There you go, flying purple people. The Antichrist with his ten-toed, ten-horned confederacy, even um, when he desolates and devours, it says, this false ecumenical church, um, and crushes three horns. You know, he, has, he starts out with ten, and he, he crushes three of them. You know, three, gone. Um, because they probably refuse to submit to his growing authority. So he crushes them, and then he establishes his worldwide dictatorship. But even then, he cannot keep his kingdom unified. Because he faces both the rebellion of the Jews who refused to bow to him and take the mark of the beast, and the rebellion of all those who will come to faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation. And there will be millions of people, praise the Lord, they're called tribulation saints. They won't be part of the church, so they're called tribulation saints, but they come to know Christ, and many of them will be martyred for their faith, but they will refuse to worship the beast. And then his inability to keep his kingdom unified is evidenced by the tremendous civil war that we read about in Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 to 45, in which forces from the south and the east and the north contend with him and his confederacy for supremacy. So they all come against the Antichrist, the beast, to war against him in the, bat in the battle of Armageddon, and then Christ comes in the sky, and they turn from warring against him to warring against Christ. And then he smashes the whole thing, doesn't he? All right, now, as with the continuation of the element of iron from the legs to the feet and the ten toes of the statue, there is a connection of this fourth beast in Daniel 7 and the final kingdom of the ten horns because, as I said, those horns are connected to the beast. Those horns come out of his head. So... I said all that in order to tell you that there is a connection between the ancient Rome and the final Gentile power. And that connection is seen in the iron and it's seen in the ten horns connected to the beast. That is why we often call this final uh, kingdom of the times of the Gentiles the revived Roman Empire. That's why I said all that, all right? So now you understand when I say the revived Roman Empire. Why we call it that? Well, in Daniel 2.44, just read it a minute ago, there is another prophetic piece of the puzzle that Daniel gives us when he says that the toes are kings. Now, that doesn't mean kings walking around with crowns on their heads. That could be presidents. It could be prime ministers. It could be ambassadors to the UN, I don't know, you know, but it's leaders. 
Now, translating this information to chapter 7's parallel prophecy means that the ten horns of that dreadful beast are also ten kings. Get it? All right? Heads of state. So the end times power coalition is referred to as ten toes, ten horns, ten kings. All the same thing. Now, in Daniel 7, 8, we learn that these kings appear before the Antichrist arises on the scene, before he is revealed, because they're in existence when he comes out of the midst of them. And what comes out of the midst is called a little horn. At the beginning, he just has a little power. A little horn arises. That's the 11th king, and he is a man because he's described, this little horn is described as having the eyes of a man and the mouth, a mouth that speaks blasphemous things. Another name for the little horn of Daniel 7 is the beast of Revelation 17, 12. Initially, initially, he receives his power and his position as leader over the final Gentile kingdom from the ten kings the ten leaders. They essentially democratically vote him into his position of power. But later, when he is empowered by the dragon, and who is the dragon? Satan, Revelation 12.3, who, guess what, also has ten horns. So you see the kingdom, the final kingdom, and the final leader, the Antichrist, and Satan all have ten horns. They're all connected. This is a satanic final Gentile kingdom. Um, but when he is empowered by the dragon, that is when he turns on three of the kings. It says he plucks them out by their roots. And that's when he also turns on the uh, ecumenical church and devours her. Well, this scenario doesn't fit anything that has taken place in history. Um, even in the extended time factor of ancient Rome, it is about a yet future form of the iron-crushing Roman Empire that once dominated uh, from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Fertile Crescent, all the way to Iran. That's how big the Roman Empire was from the Mediterranean to present-day Iran. Now, returning to the subject of the division that's mentioned in verse 41, we also have this additional statement in verse 43. He says, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another. And if you don't think I had fun studying that one, yikes, they. Okay, first of all, we start with they. What does they refer to? They shall mingle themselves. Well, they, if you go back, it's the iron and the clay. The iron and the clay will mingle with the seed of men. Now, you just go home on your computers and type under Google search seed of men from Daniel chapter 2, and whoa, will you be bombarded with all kinds of ideas about what it means. But let's go to the original language, which is Aramaic here, and see what the word seed means, okay? The Aramaic word for seed is con connected with, well, this makes sense, procreation, reproduction. How does mankind reproduce? Seed. 
the, the sperm, okay? So it has to do with procreation, reproduction, um, marriage, some say. Well, the Aramaic word for men, seed of men, is a re reference to the common man, basically inferior men, you know, not, not the elite, not the leaders, but the common man. So the federation of 10 nations or 10 groups of nations, perhaps regional groupings, will be much like ancient Rome. It's gonna be a mixture of many different nationalities who do not really adhere. The strong iron-like parts and the brittle clay-like parts of the kingdom are gonna mingle with the procreation of the common man. They won't be unified. They won't cleave to one another. Now what on earth does that mean? Well, some believe that verse 43 is predicting a huge increase in the number of interracial, interethnic, and interreligious offspring. There may even be rewards or incentives for those who willingly participate in intermarriages. You see, the hope of the rulers will be for mankind, the seed of men, you know, the common man for mankind, to drift away from traditional cultures and nationalities and ethnicities and all that kind of thing and adopt a blended culture. And actually, truth be known, this is already the, the, the great plan of global think tanks like the Club of Rome. Ever hear of the Club of Rome? Well, Google that one. How about the Trilateral Commission or the Committee of 300 or the Bilderberg Group? These are big global think tanks. They're in existence and they're really running the show here on planet Earth. A new world order is the great plan of the elitist educated classes who control politics and our education system and the media. They want to create a global culture, a one world global culture. And the first thing on their agenda, and you can Google any one of those and they'll tell you that, they're not hiding it. The number one thing on their agenda is to promote the migration of third world peoples into developed nations so that the outcome is ethnically mixed communities. Have you wondered why they've been talking about building a wall on our southern border for years and years and years and they never do it? Because they don't really want it. The second part of their plan is to promote multiculturalism. And this stems from a social philosophy that wants to see people from different traditions living side by side with one another in mutual respect and with an openness to learn from one another. Now, who can disagree with that? On paper, that sounds wonderful. It sounds like an ideal way to finally gain world unity and, and, and world peace, doesn't it? You can't help but say, oh, that would be great, wouldn't it? The problem is, however, twofold. Number one, 
We don't live in an ideal world. We do, I wish we did, but we don't. We do not live in an ideal world. We live in a sin-cursed world where the current ruling prince, no, he is not bound yet, is Satan. So there is the sin, and there also is the sin nature of man to contend with. As long as man has a desperately wicked heart, he will fight and he will war. Why? Because of his own lusts. James 4 1. Secondly, the only way to achieve this kind of desired unity would be to view all religions as equally valid and true which is the goal of ecumenicism. However, the Bible very clearly states that there is only one way to God the Father, and it is through God the Son. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The one world order of men, apart from the oneness that is found in Jesus Christ, is simply an effort to build another Tower of Babel. And that is why the campaign to make all men citizens of the world by the ten-toed final Gentile kingdom and its beastly leaders is going to fail miserably. What did Daniel say? They shall not cleave one to another. Apart from Christ, the Babel world system fails every single time, no matter what type of government, whether it's a monarchy, an oligarchy, a military aristocracy, <laughs> or a, uh, if it's imperialism, whatever. Every, no matter what type of government, it fails. The Babylonian world system fails, no matter the military prowess of the kingdoms or the charisma of the leaders, no matter the century of its existence. It is always doomed to failure. The only true oneness that comes to people of every nation, every race, every tongue, gender, generation, social status, whether bond or free, every age, every former religion is in Christ. And in Christ, I mean, that is the solution, isn't it? To bring the whole world together. In oneness, who cares about race, gender, sex, um, uh, all that stuff, right? Nationality. We don't care. I don't care. I don't care your background. I don't care your, your income. I don't care anything about you except that you're my sister in Christ. That's where the true oneness is. All barriers that once divided are broken down when people put their faith in the one true Savior and his kingdom of light and truth. Well, at this point, we're going to have a little fun because, what time is it? Oh, my. That can't be. Oh, if you have to go, you have to go. All right. I'm just getting started. I want to look at some of the ideas, some of the ideas that have been suggested about um, the identity of the ten toes, okay? One of them is that people propose Psalm 83. Psalm 83, they say, gives a clue because it, can, it speaks of a confederation of enemies who come against Israel because they want to cut her off as being a nation. And in verses 6 to 8 of Psalm 83, 10 groups of people are mentioned. 10. All of which were once part of the ancient Roman Empire and all of which today are Muslim nations. 
And these people, they say, are united as iron about one thing, their hatred of Israel. Um, however, they are also brittle, like clay, because of their relationship with one another. You know, the descendants of Esau and Ishmael have long been known for fighting among themselves, like the Sunnis against the Shiites. So they say that this is, <clears throat> Psalm 83 talks about um, the Muslims coming against Israel, united as iron against Israel, but broken up like clay among themselves. Okay, that's one view. Um, so it says that the 10 kings are gonna be some kind of Muslim coalition. I don't really go that route because I think by that point in time, the war of Gog and Magog, when Russia comes down on Israel with a coalition of Muslim nations, God intervenes, and I think the Muslims are going to be taken care of by this point in time. All right? Now, some connect the Ten Kings to what is going on um, in the Club of Rome, which was initiated back in 1968 when leaders from ten different countries, start out with ten different countries, gathered in Rome. It's an organization that consists of current and former heads of state, UN bureaucrats, high-level politicians, government officials, diplomats, scientists, econo economists, and business leaders from around the world. There's some names on there that you would recognize. It's amazing. Um, but they claim, this Club of Rome claims to have the solutions for world peace and prosperity. In 1973, they issued a special report in which they revealed their division of the entire world. They took the whole world and they divided it into sections, and guess how many there are? Ten political sections, and they refer to them as kingdoms, ten kingdoms. That's interesting. I give you those kingdoms in your email lesson. Others teach that the ten toes are, are going to be a ten-nation alliance in Europe. Now, back some years ago, a lot of people got, futurists got excited because the EU, the European Union, consisted of 10 nations. Well, since that time, it has grown to 28. There are 28 nations today in the EU, the European Union. However, many leaders and um, economists, such as Alan Greenspan, predict that the EU is gonna be forced eventually to reshape itself into a smaller group. The Economist magazine produced a paper in 2011 which said that they believe in the end it will be 10 countries. They have a problem right now because there are some lazy countries in it who just want to have welfare, welfare handouts, you know, like Greece. <laughs> and then there are other very productive, um, ambitious countries like Germany, and so they're kind of quarreling brittle clay with each other. So they think it's going to come down to 10 countries, and those are listed in your email lesson. Now, as we have been speaking about the large image standing on ancient sands of Babel in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, did you know, and this is interesting, I just have to add this, because I was online and I saw this building with my own two eyes, that one of the buildings of the European Parliament, this is in Strasbourg, France, was designed purposely to look like an unfinished tower. It looks like what you think that. Tower of Babel would look like. They leave the top unfinished. And when you go inside that building, there is inside of it a large replica of the unfinished Tower of Babel. 
The EU, the European Union boasts, they brag, that the diversity of their languages will be reconciled through political and cultural unity. You know what that is? That's an attempt to reverse the Babel effect. The famous EU poster, which maybe you have seen, shows the Tower of Babel on it. And the slogan, many tongues, one voice. Above the tower are 12 Euro stars. They look like stars, but if you look closely, they're inverted pentagrams. You know what a pentagram is? It's an occult symbol for Satan. In the background of the unfinished Tower of Babel on the poster is a big crane, and it is rebuilding the tower. Also interesting is the EU logo, which depicts a woman riding a beast. That's the connection with the One World Ecumenical Church, because in Revelation 17, she's seen as a woman riding a beast. Now, the beast, they say, is Zeus. Zeus. You know, the number one god of mythology, who turned himself into a beast. He turned himself into a bull. Did you know that? If you didn't, you don't know your mythology. <laughs> and then, um, inside their parliamentary building, there is a large mural. Can you imagine going in, and here's the first thing that hits your eyes. A large mural of a naked woman riding a beast. And in their Brussels headquarters for the Council of Europe, there is a bronze statue of a woman riding a beast. That's all very strange, isn't it? I still think there's going to be some connection with the European Union, with this final um, Gentile nation. Anyway, then there's another view that says the international body known as the United Nations is the identity of the fifth Gentile kingdom of the feet and the toes. The EU sponsors the UN, which is a beastly entity. Sorry, if you like the UN, I don't. Um, and it, too, has a proposed world government agenda. Interestingly, most of the world's nations, while retaining their membership in the United Nations, have also joined regional associations. And I give those in your notes, and guess how many there are? Ten. Hmm. All right, that's just a few of what maybe the ten toes symbolize. Let's look real quickly at what could be the iron and the clay, and then I'll let you go, and you don't have to hear me for two weeks, all right? Um, <laughs> some teach that the iron and clay represents democracies, trying to mix with radical Islam and Sharia law. You know, the ancient Roman Empire, as I said, covered many countries that today are Muslim. Furthermore, Muslims are quickly infiltrating Europe, are they not? Have a big problem with that over there. So that's what some say. Some say that the iron and clay mingled with the seed of men is some sort of genetic mixing of humans with fallen angels. And if you don't think that's, if you think that's weird or rare, go online and you will be amazed at how many people think that. It's more popular than you would imagine. I don't really go that route, okay? Some teach that the iron is Islam and the clay is apostate Christianity. Or, you know, that one world church, the mystery Babylon. However, I got a problem with this, too, because all of the previous metals of the image, the metals represented government, 
governmental systems, like monarchies and oligarchies, right? Always government. Um, not religions. Never once did the metal represent a religion. Um, iron was the main feature of the Roman Empire, which was not Islamic. So I don't think that the iron would suddenly, instead of being uh, a government an, of imperialism, would suddenly be um, is, is Islam. But clay is not a metal. So maybe the baked clay does speak of a religion. So you could have the iron, a governmental system like imperialism, which is what the final kingdom will be because they'll try to colonize the whole world by force, mixed with a religion like Islam or like the apostate church. The only problem I have with that is I don't think Islam or the ecumenical, well I know the ecumenical church doesn't go all the way to the end of the seven years of tribulation um, because she's devoured in the middle and Islam I think is wiped out in the war of Gog and Magog and yet the ten toes are what this returning Christ smashes. Are you following me? Okay, some of you are. <laughs> some of you are just... All right. <laughs> some view, some view, and you could go over this. You have two weeks to read all this. Wait till you see how long your notes are. Woo. Some view the iron symbolic, as I said, of an imperialistic form of government. The power and might of the imperialistic revived Roman Empire under the Antichrist will you know, seek to conquer the world by force. However, the non-metallic baked clay, the clay is of the earth, right, is symbolic of a democratic type of rule. And it's weak and brittle. Now, this is the one I really tend to go with. I think that the, um, the, the Antichrist and his, you know, he's going to be dictator, imperialistic, conquer, but, you know, kill. And, but he's going to be joined with those ten kings, that's why he subdues three of them, who are more, like, you know, democratic. And the EU and the UN are both supposedly democratic. Um, they're not very God-friendly, but they're supposedly democratic. But democracy is brittle. It is definitely brittle like clay. It only works when people are under God and use the Bible as the foundation for their decisions. And a look at history tells us that apart from God and his word, democracy fails every time because the voice of the people who do not know God is a fickle voice. Just look at what's going on today in our politics. The voice of the people without God is fickle. So those who have this idea of the iron and clay say that the final stage of the coalition of the Western nations dominated by Roman principles, there's going to be a struggle for dominance between the iron of imperialism and the clay of democracy. And those two are going to struggle and attempt to mingle together with the minds of the common man, the seed of men, but they will not cleave one to another. Then there's one more and I'll quit. <laughs> The inherent weakness of the iron mixed with clay appears in its final form with the beast of ten horns, who, although empowered by Satan, iron, is yet only a man. That's the Antichrist. I think the iron mixed with clay is also a picture of the Antichrist. He, just like Nebuchadnezzar, is synonymous with his kingdom. They're both beasts. He, if Daniel was talking to the Antichrist, he could say, Thou art the kingdom of the mixed iron and clay. And so ultimately, he is, he is, he is the Satan man, we could call him. I believe he's actually going to be possessed by Satan. He is the Satan man. 
and he can never, ever unify the seed of men, you know, the common man. He can't ever unify the world. He can only cause chaos and strife and division. Only the God-man, Christ, can ever unify this world. The good news about the final kingdom is that it is short-lived, only seven years, with three and a half of them being a worldwide kingdom. The additional silver lining in the dark clouds is that it will be this kingdom and all its terror, the terror that will go on, you know, the fiery furnace of this last kingdom that will prepare Israel to hail that smiting stone when he comes back and delivers her. And she will be saved. Israel will be saved. All right. Have your brains been tickled? <laughs> Are your puzzlers sore? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> may we truly, every one of us, grasp the swiftness of the passing of time and certainly of the fulfillment of prophecy. As we look around us, those 10 kings could be really in place today. Help us to understand, Father, ourselves, to know ourselves in light of your word and to see our lives as revealed by the light and the truth that streams out from your word. And may each of us renew the marvelous relationship of love, truth, and faith in the Son of God, our Savior, who has called us out, thank goodness, out of the kingdoms of the darkness of this world to be part of the kingdom of his light and his truth and his love. And I pray that that is true for everyone in this room. Now go before us, help us to be a voice for you in the next two weeks and to assemble back here safely and ready to go again in two weeks. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.